I'm Rob Kirkup. Welcome to How Haunted, a weekly paranormal podcast where each episode we explore the horrible history and terrifying ghost stories of one of the scariest places on the planet. In episode 54 we head to Wales and step inside a fortress standing on a site with almost 2,000 years occupation. The castle here was built in the late 11th century in the centre of this capital city which has grown around it. Today it is a breathtaking place to visit but it's also the haunt of all manner of nightmarish phantoms and creatures. But just how haunted is Cardiff Castle? Listener discretion is advised as each episode of How Haunted will feature gruesome tales, horrific happenings, bloody murder and ghosts. So many ghosts. Listen on if you dare. Cardiff Castle is one of the most iconic landmarks and leading heritage attractions in all of Wales. Situated in the heart of the capital city, it's a sprawling complex of buildings that have been inhabited for almost 2,000 years. The castle has seen many changes over the centuries, but it's always been a symbol of power and authority. The earliest structure that we know of on the present site of Cardiff Castle was a Roman fort built here in around 55 AD. This site was chosen due to the defensive position it occupied overlooking the River Taff. It was a rectangular structure and it was used to control the river crossing and to protect the Roman settlements in the area. Archaeological evidence indicates that this was the first of four forts the Romans built here. The first was used until around 80 AD when it was replaced by two much smaller forts. During the 3rd century another fort was built, the remains of which can still be seen today. It was a limestone structure, approximately 194 metres, which is 635 feet, by 184 metres, which is 603 feet. Not quite a square, and the west end of the fort's walls followed the River Taff. The fort was occupied until sometime towards the end of the 4th century, when it was abandoned following the fall of the Roman Empire in Britain. The use of the area in the period from the 5th century through to the 11th century is lost to time. But following the Norman conquest of 1066, a castle was constructed on the site of the Roman forts at some point between 1081 and 1091. This was in order to control the surrounding area and to protect the new rulers of Britain's interests in Wales. The Normans would regularly build on top of existing Roman sites, as this offered considerable savings in the manpower and the materials required to construct large earth fortifications. The castle was modern bailey in construction, which is a type of castle that consists of a raised mount, which is the mot, topped by a wooden tower and a fortified enclosure. This is the bailey. Following over 600 years of neglect, the existing Roman walls had collapsed, but the resourceful Normans used the remains of these as the basis for the outer castle perimeter, digging a defensive trench and throwing up an 8.2 metre, which is 27 foot, high bank of earth over the Roman fortifications. The Normans further divided the castle with an internal wall to form an inner and outer bailey. In the northwest corner of the castle, a wooden keep was constructed on top of a 12 metre, which is 40 feet, tall earth mound. This was surrounded by a 9.1 metre, which is 30 foot, wide moat. The mot was the largest built in Wales. The overall area of the castle was around 8.25 acres, with the inner bailey around two acres in size. The castle was built at the order of Robert Fitzhammond, 
a Norman knight who had been granted the Lordship of Glamorgan by King William I, who was also known by the name William the Conqueror or William the Bastard, and Cardiff Castle became Fitzhamond's main stronghold in Glamorgan. The site was close to the sea and could easily be supplied by ship, and it was well protected by rivers and offered complete control over the old Roman road running along the coast. In 1106, Robert Fitzhamon was fatally wounded while fighting in the Normandy region of France. He had been fighting alongside King Henry I, who was the fourth son of William the Conqueror, in a series of conflicts against Henry's older brother, Robert Curthose, who had inherited Normandy when his father died in 1087. England had been left to William's third son, William Rufus, who was crowned William II. When William II was killed in a hunting accident in 1100, he was succeeded by Henry. Fitzharmon had taken a blow to the head, and for the rest of his short life, he would never be the same again. He died in March 1107. In 1122, King Henry I gave the castle to Robert Fitzroy, 1st Earl of Gloucester. Robert was not only the husband of the previous owner, Robert Fitzharmon's daughter Mabe, but he was also the illegitimate son of the king. Robert Curtos was imprisoned by his own brother, King Henry I, at Cardiff Castle, following the failed attempt to take England for himself. He was initially imprisoned at Devizes in Wiltshire, but in 1126 he was moved to Cardiff Castle, where he would remain until he died in February 1134, aged around 83. Around the middle of the century, possibly under Robert of Gloucester, the castle was rebuilt in stone. This new castle was much larger and more impressive than the original Mott and Bailey castle. It had a strong 12-sided shell keep, a shell keep is named so because its outer walls provide a protective shell for the smaller buildings within. It was 23 metres wide, which is 77 foot, by 9 metres high, which is 30 foot. A gatehouse and a series of curtain walls around the south and west sides of the inner bailey were added. The castle was also surrounded by a moat. Over the centuries that followed, Cardiff Castle was subject to attacks due to the conflict between the Welsh and the Anglo-Normans who ruled over them. This led to additions and improvements to the castle. By 1184, town walls had been built around Cardiff, and the west gate of the town was constructed in the gap between the castle and the river. The black tower that forms part of the southern gateway was added. Around the same time the northern and eastern walls of the inner bailey were rebuilt in stone. The inner bailey was reached through a gatehouse on the eastern side, protected by two circular towers and it was later called the Exchequer Gate. By 1306, Cardiff Castle was in the ownership of Hugh Dispenser the Younger, and the Dispenser's rule brought about even more unrest from the Welsh locals, and as a result, bloodshed. Their governance was harsh, and following a period of discontent and civil unrest, Welsh nobleman Llewellyn Bren led a rebellion in 1316. Previously, Bren had been summoned by King Edward II to Lincoln to face charges of treason, but instead, he rounded up a 10,000 strong rebellion and led them to Caerphilly Castle on the 28th of January 1316. The surprise attack led to them capturing the constable outside the castle, and despite capturing the outer ward of the castle, the inner defences could not be breached. They turned their attention to the town, burning houses and killing those living there. The revolt quickly spread through Glamorgan and Gwent, with a number of castles and towns including Cardiff, raided and buildings burned. The king ordered his troops that the rebellion must be stopped, and six weeks after the initial siege at Caerphilly, the Welsh surrendered. 
On the 18th of March, Bren surrendered to the Earl of Hereford. He said that he had led the revolt and he would accept whatever punishment awaited him, but that his men should be spared. This gesture endeared Brent to the Earl, as well as Roger Mortimer, the first Earl of March, who had borne witness to this surrender. They both promised Bren that they would speak to the King on his behalf and put his case forward. In July 1316, Bren was taken to London where he was held prisoner. He was then moved to the Tower of London for almost a year, where he was held from the 27th of July 1316 to the 17th of June 1317. The Earl of Hereford and Mortimer asked the King to consider pardoning Bren and his family, and to consider how it would go some way to appeasing the angry people of Wales. It seems likely that their influence won a pardon for many of Bren's men, but not for Bren himself. He was handed over to Hugh, the younger dispenser. He had become Lord of Glamorgan in November 1317. He ordered that the prisoner be brought to Cardiff Castle. And it was here that without a trial, or the knowledge or guidance from the King, that Bren would face a traitor's death. He was hanged, then drawn, and quartered. If you're squeamish, you may want to skip ahead 60 seconds. But for those of you still with me, this was the worst end that you could ever imagine. Firstly they were drawn, which means they were dragged behind a horse to the gallows. Then they were hung until nearly dead, but not quite. They were cut down, and then they had their penis and testicles cut off and thrown into a fire. Then their abdomen would be slit open from groin to sternum, and their intestines would be pulled out, all the while the prisoner would still be alive, drifting in and out of consciousness. If they had survived this far, their heart would be cut from their chest and burnt. The prisoner would now be decapitated and their body cut into four parts. This is the quartering. It appears from the medieval drawings of this barbaric act that this would mean four parts, two of which had a leg each and the other two having an arm each. These four parts on the head would then be parboiled in a mixture of spices designed to preserve the flesh a little longer than usual, as the body parts would be put on display around the town or castle walls, as a warning to others. After Bren's body parts were displayed across the county, they were buried at the Monastery of Greyfriars in Cardiff. Bren's lands were seized by Dispenser, and his wife, Lykey, and their sons were imprisoned in Cardiff. This was condemned, not only by the local Welsh people, but by barons and lords across Britain. In an effort to appease the angry mob, Hugh Dispenser arrested Sir William Fleming as a scapegoat, blaming him for the incident. Fleming was held in the Black Tower and then executed in the grounds of Cardiff Castle. This didn't work. The Lords petitioned King Edward II to remove Dispenser, but the King refused. Left with no other options, these Lords joined forces with an army of Welsh men and raided Dispenser lands in Glamorgan. Cardiff Castle was taken and Halaiki and her sons were freed. After ten days of raids, the king exiled the dispensers. However, this was purely a delaying tactic on the part of the king, as he gathered forces and sent them to deal with the wayward lords. This came to a head on the 16th of March 1322, at the Battle of Borough Bridge. The rebels were defeated, and the Earl of Hereford was killed when a pikeman hiding underneath a bridge speared him up the anus. With the dispensers reinstated, Halaiki Bren and her sons were once again imprisoned, this time in Bristol Castle. This once again led to outrage and action. 
In October 1326, a resistance led by Roger Mortimer, who had been exiled, and was in a relationship with the king's estranged wife Isabella of France, succeeded in capturing Hugh Dispenser, who was hanged, drawn and quartered on the 24th of November 1326, and the deposition of King Edward II happened on the 21st of January 1327. The king died in Berkeley Castle on the 23rd of September, although it's long been debated as to whether he was actually dead, or whether this was a way to deter those who were regularly plotting to free him. The cause of death is up for debate too, with historians largely agreeing that he was most likely murdered. Cardiff Castle was inherited by Hugh Dispenser's widow, and upon her death in 1337, their son, Hugh Dispenser II, succeeded to the lordship. It passed through the hands of various dispensers, and towards the end of the 1300s, Caerphilly Castle was largely being used as the main family residence. Thomas, the final dispenser, was executed in Bristol in 1400 for treason, having been charged with conspiring against King Henry IV. In the year 1400, a Welsh rebellion broke out. This was led by Welsh leader, soldier and military commander Owain Glyndw. This revolt lasted 15 years, with the aim of ending English rule in Wales. In 1404, he broke through the west gate of Cardiff and set fire to the town and the castle. The only place in Cardiff that was spared was the Monastery of Greyfriars, as this is where Llewellyn Bren's body lay. Cardiff Castle was damaged badly, especially the Black Tower and the Southern Gatehouse. In 1430, a new tower was added alongside the existing Black Tower. This restored the gateway and extended the defences. Between 1425 and 1439, a new domestic range was added in the southwest of the site, between a central octagonal tower, which was 23 metres or 75 feet high. The castle changed hands constantly across the years that would follow, with regular improvements and alterations made, and in 1495, Henry VII formally revoked the marcher territory status of Cardiff Castle and its surrounding territories, bringing them under normal English law as the County of Glamorgan. During the 16th century the castle was used to hold prisoners within the Black Tower, and in 1542 Thomas Capper, who was considered a heretic, was burnt at the stake at Cardiff Castle at the order of King Henry VIII, between the rival royalist supporters of King Charles I and Parliament. Cardiff Castle was initially taken by a parliamentary force, but was regained by royalist supporters in 1645. When fighting broke out again in 1648, a royalist army attacked Cardiff in a bid to regain the castle, leading to the Battle of St Fagans just outside the city, which saw a heavy royalist defeat. Cardiff Castle survived the war, relatively unscathed, which could not be said of many other castles that were deliberately damaged, or in some cases completely destroyed. Towards the end of the 18th century, the Stuart family, who would become the Marquis of Butte, occupied Cardiff Castle, and this would be the last family line to call Cardiff Castle home. The castle was renovated with the aim of turning it into a grand family home. The grounds were radically altered under a programme of work that involved famous English gardener and landscape architect Capability Brown and his son-in-law Henry Holland. The stone wall that separated the inner and outer baileys was blown up using gunpowder. The Shire Hall and the Knights' Houses in the outer bailey were demolished, and the remaining ground partially flattened. 
and the whole of the area laid with turf. Considerable work was carried out on the main lodgings to create a more contemporary 18th century appearance. The moat was filled in as part of the landscaping and a summer house was added in the southeast corner of the castle. On the 18th of March 1848, John Crichton Stewart, the second Marquess of Butte, died aged only 54, and the castle was inherited by his son, John, who would become the third Marquess of Butte, and he was only six months old. His father had developed the coal and iron industries across South Wales and built the Cardiff docks, amassing considerable wealth. It's been claimed that the third Marquess's vast inheritance made him the richest person in the world. As he grew older, he grew to hate the design of Cardiff Castle. He felt it was a poor example of the Gothic style, and with his enormous wealth, he knew he could make some significant improvements to his castle. He hired the architect William Burgess to make his vision of Cardiff Castle a reality. The two shared a passion in medieval Gothic revivalism, and with money no object, work began in 1868, starting with the construction of a 40 metre or 132 foot high clock tower. The tower, built in Burgess's signature Forest of Dean Ashlar stone, formed a suite of bachelor rooms, comprising a bedroom, a servant's room, and the summer and winter smoking rooms. Internally, the rooms were sumptuously decorated with gildings, carvings, and cartoons depicting the seasons, myths and fables. The improvements kept on coming with the construction of the guest tower, the Arab room, the Chaucer room, the nursery, the library, the banquet and hall, and bedrooms for both Lord and Lady Butte. A roof garden was added, featuring a sculpture of the Madonna and Child, by Chicardo Virginia. An octagon tower was added, including an oratory built on the spot where Butte's father had died, and the Chaucer room, the roof of which is considered by contemporary historian Mark Giroud to be a superb example of Burgess's genius. Another historian, Megan Aldrich, while talking on the subject of Burgess's interiors at Cardiff Castle, said, and I quote, they are amongst the most magnificent that the Gothic revival ever achieved. Architectural historian J. Mordand Crook has described them as three-dimensional passports to fairy kingdoms and realms of gold, and John Newman praises them as the most successful of all the fantasy castles of the 19th century. The fourth Marquess, also called John, acquired Cardiff Castle in 1900 on the death of his father, and carried out further work on the castle, mostly restoring the medieval sections. During World War II, tunnels within the medieval walls were used as air raid shelters. These were able to hold up to 1,800 people in relative comfort. In 1947, John, the fifth Marquess, inherited the castle on the death of his father, and with the Butte family fortune gone, and death duties to be paid, he sold the land he now owned in Cardiff, and gifted Cardiff Castle and the surrounding park to the city for the people of the city. The castle was protected as a Grade 1 listed building and as a scheduled monument. Since 1986, Cardiff Castle has been open as a tourist attraction, and is one of the most popular sites in the city, and it's as haunted as it is impressive. Arguably the best known of Cardiff Castle's ghosts is that of the second Marquess of Butte, John Crichton Stewart, who died on the 18th of March 1848. His premature death came about suddenly in the early hours of the morning, in an area which is today a chapel, but at the time was a dressing room. His restless spirit is seen 
wearing a distinctive red coat. He is seen standing near the library fireplace. He then passes through a wall, which in his day was a doorway, and is today six feet thick and made of solid stone. And he enters the chapel. He is easily identifiable to those fortunate enough to witness him, as there is a bust of him in the room. He manifests himself in other ways, as sometimes in the early hours of the morning, at 3.45 the time of his death, lights flicker to life, bathing rooms that were in complete darkness and bright light, the bulbs burning brighter than they would usually, and then it stops as quickly as it began. The doors of the dining room violently slam open and closed. In 1976, a couple were at the castle when they experienced something out of the ordinary. They told a member of staff, a tall man in a cloak pushed past us in a great hurry. The lady went on to explain that she had been stood at the top of a staircase when she happened to look to her right and saw a tall man in a red cloak. She said that he seemed to scowl at her, then disappear. She then noticed his likeness to a painting hanging on the wall, the text underneath it saying that it was the second Marquess of Butte. The second Marquess's second wife is also said to remain at the castle. Lady Sophia didn't die at Cardiff Castle. She died on the 28th of December 1859, at the age of only 50, in Edinburgh, Scotland. She died of Bright's disease, which is what kidney diseases were classified at the time. She was laid to rest in the family vault on the Isle of Butte. It's unknown why in death she's drawn back to Cardiff Castle, her sad spectre seen walk in the castle grounds. But some have suggested that it may be because her husband was buried with his first wife Maria when he died. During the time of the third Marquess, paranormal occurrences were already being reported at Cardiff Castle. Reportedly in November 1868, a Mr John Boyle was in the library of the castle. Boyle had been a trusted acquaintance of the Marquess's father, the second Marquess. He heard the unmistakable sound of a horse-drawn carriage come through the courtyard and come to a halt at the door to the castle. At this point, he happened to be leaving the library, and when he asked the butler who had arrived at the castle, the butler was confused and said there'd be no visitors. Boyle then learned of a terrible secret. This was not the first reporting of a phantom horse-drawn carriage arriving at the castle, and each previous time it coincided with the death of a member of the Hastings family, a family with close personal ties to the Lord Buttes, as the second Marquess's second wife Sophia had been a Hastings prior to their wedding. An unsubstantiated report dates from 1956, when a newspaper article tells of a local man called David Brecken, which read, Passing the walls of Cardiff Castle on a frosty night, I heard a faint jingle of harness, the clatter of horses' hooves, the sounds of bells, and an Irish coachman cry from the direction of Canton Bridge. A second later, a coach and four passed me at a steady trot, swung left-handed through the gate castle doors, and all was gone from view. I've searched high and low, and I can find no record of this newspaper story, but that's not to say that it didn't happen. Visitors to this day hear the sounds of a horse-drawn carriage outside the castle, the unmistakable clip-clop of the horse's hooves, but of course, when they look out of the window expecting to see the old-fashioned mode of transport, there's nothing there, although the sound continues. A mysterious spook is encountered by staff in a storeroom located near the chapel. It's a female wearing a grey and white skirt, but she has no face. Often the storeroom will be found to have had things moved around, or thrown from the shelves, and the faceless woman is blamed. 
No one knows who she is, or why she chooses to remain in that storeroom, but psychics to the castle who have claimed to make contact with her have said that she is called Sarah. Another female phantom is the Grey Lady, another woman whose identity is unknown, but she is seen in the castle grounds wearing a long grey dress. She moves silently, and is most commonly seen at twilight. She is seen on Cardiff Bridge over the River Taff near the castle, where she has been reported waving at startled passers-by. Yet another shadowy female form calls the Clock Tower, added in 1868, home. The Royal Welsh College of Music and Drama, which was founded in 1949, was housed in the Clock Tower for decades, until it was relocated in the castle's former stables, north of the castle in 1998. And during that period of time, it was commonplace for students to encounter her. This was so well known that some students would avoid wandering the corridors after dark alone, for fear of coming face to face with this mysterious ghost. A first-hand account dating from 1975 tells of a member of staff at the time, Derek Edwards, who was cleaning in the dining hall when he spotted a man he didn't recognise standing at the other end of the room. Derek said, Hello sir, can I help you? At that point the man turned to face him and simply dissolved away before his very eyes. Staff and visitors have seen people wearing military uniform. The moment they glance away and then look back, they're gone. Psychics to the castle have claimed these to be those who died there during the Civil War when the castle was attacked between 1642 and 1648. And then there is the giant. Legend says that a three metre tall giant roams the castle grounds. Strange wispy phantoms are seen floating around in rooms, like a fine mist that appears to have form, but dissipates soon after appearing. Footsteps are heard coming from rooms that are known to be empty. And icy cold spots are experienced here, even on the warmest summer's days. One visitor to the castle who experienced something out of the ordinary was Rhys Evans, who emailed me to tell me all about his experience at Cardiff Castle. Rhys lives in Newport, around 15 miles or 24 kilometres away from Cardiff, and he was having a day out with his eight-year-old daughter Keris in March of this year, 2023, and they decided to go to Cardiff Castle as it was a bit drizzly and it seemed a good way to escape the weather while keeping his daughter occupied. He told me that she loved it. It really captured her imagination, and as you can imagine with a child of that age, she was constantly asking questions. He said, We were in the banqueting hall, and she was marvelling at the decorations on the wall and the ceilings. There was only the two of us in there, which was unusual as the castle was moderately busy. And as I listened to Keris pointing out things in the elaborate artwork, I heard footsteps behind me. I assumed some other visitors had entered and thought nothing of it. The footsteps continued, and these slow, loud footsteps seemed to be approaching us from behind. Keris and I both looked behind us at the same time, and the moment we did, the footsteps stopped. We were still the only people in the room. There was no one else there. You can follow How Haunted on Twitter at at HowHauntedPod or over on Instagram at How Haunted Pod, where you will see photos galore relating to Cardiff Castle. If you want to get in touch, you can do so by visiting the website www.how-haunted.com, or you can email me directly at rob 
at how-haunted.com. If you'd like to support the show, you could sign up to one of three Patreon tiers. They start at as little as £1. You can get early, ad-free access to episodes, and a monthly bonus episode where I conduct a paranormal investigation, talking you through the history, ghost stories, and what happened on the night itself. This is interspersed with audio from the ghost hunt. You can also get yourself some exclusive How Haunted merch, including a mug and a t-shirt. Find out more at patreon.com forward slash howhauntedpod. If you'd like to support the show but you aren't a fan of Patreon, why not donate £2 at buymeacoffee.com forward slash howhauntedpod. All the information and links are in this podcast episode description. If you've enjoyed this episode, then please consider leaving a review on your podcast provider of choice. It really does help other people to find How Haunted. Next time out, we're headed back to my native northeast, and we look at a Roman fort where a spectral Roman soldier has been seen standing on guard. A transport museum inhabited by the spectre of a man killed in a training accident during World War II. A museum which is the haunt of an Egyptian mummy. And a railway museum where a man in a flat cap and overalls is seen, and the laughing of children is heard. Find out more next week, and join me, when we take a look at the haunted museums of Tyne and Weir. Thank you so much for accompanying me for our paranormal adventures once again. Stay safe, and join me next time, where we will once again ask the question, How Haunted? How Haunted?